All right. Before we dive into God's word this morning, would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come before you now this morning. Father, we seek to hear you speak to us through your holy word. Father, unless you speak, we have no hope. Without you speaking to us, Lord, we're blind. But we thank you that your word is living and active and that when we open your word, that your Holy Spirit allows us to hear the very voice of God. And that you shape our hearts into Christ-like conformity. So now, Lord, we ask that you would take our hearts, incline them to yours. That you take hold of our eyes and open them, that we would see your glory and beauty and splendor. That, holy God, you would unite us to you, to your heart. And that we would be united collectively here as one body in Christ. That, Lord, we would seek to be satisfied with your truth not with the lies of the world. We'd be satisfied with your love and that you would lead us, Lord, lead us each and every step. I ask now, Father, that your Holy Spirit would allow me to properly, faithfully proclaim what you have said here. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do, and that is make dead bones live. Bind up broken hearts. Put courage and boldness into us. In short, we ask that you would allow us to put on the new heart. We pray all this in the powerful, exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, as we were looking through the book of Colossians, we looked at verses 10 and just the beginning of 12. And we were looking at this this truth that Paul calls us to, to put on the new man. And so we're going to pick up on that. It's going to be putting on the new man, part two. And just to recap a little bit, so we can understand what is going to happen to what's flowing from the text this morning. Last week, we saw that putting on the new man was talking about putting on the new life, the eternal life that we have received by faith in Jesus. And that with that, there came a renewing to a full knowledge of Christ, that God was renewing us, maturing us, sanctifying us, growing us into, mature, in, in, into Christ-like conformity. And that because of that, everything that divided, every distinction group was put away and we've been reconciled in Christ. And part of this new man is understanding our new statuses, which is showed that we were chosen by God, set apart by God and for God and loved by God. And so recognizing all that God had done for us and has done for us, it is doing for us. Now we can begin to look at the second part on how we should respond, but we have to always begin with what God has done before we start thinking about what we must do, because everything we do flows out of what God has done and is doing in us and will do. And so as we look on putting on the new man today, we're going to be looking that the part of putting on the new man is putting on the new heart. But I want to put a question before us. Two questions, actually. The first is, how would you describe the heart of Christ? 
we can say who Jesus is, but how would you describe his heart? The second is, is cultivating a Christ-like heart something that you've made the focus of your life? Or have you fallen into the trap that Christ-likeness is more about growing in biblical knowledge than in an actual Christ-like heart? I ask that question because Many of us have not given prayerful attention to having a Christ-like heart. We simply want to have really good Christ Christology, really good Christ-like doctrine. But notice Paul doesn't say, put on the new doctrine. He's telling you to put on the new man and put on the new heart. This, nobody, I think, would ever accuse me of saying doctrine and theology doesn't matter. Um. But we're called to put on the new heart. So do you know the heart of Christ? And are you focusing on having the heart of Christ? I really want that to just kind of hang in front of us this morning. And if there's anybody here, and I am been guilty of this in many seasons of my life, that thinks they're good with God because you know a lot, I want you to know that is a lie from the pit of hell. The true measure if we're growing in, in, in spiritual maturity, is if our heart resembles the heart of Christ more. Because let us never forget, the devil would get a 4.0 in seminary. But his heart is wicked and corrupt. You know, by way of illustration, it would be like a man who finds out he has a heart condition. And so he goes and, and he studies and reads everything about this heart condition. He can wax eloquently about the heart condition, and yet he never changes his actual practices. He simply become more educated, but not more fit. I want to make sure that our hearts are getting healthier, more Christ-like. Not that we're simply we're growing in knowledge. And so we're going to see this morning that as followers of Christ, we are to put... Putting on the new man means putting on the new heart. So let's read this morning's text, verses 12 through 15. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So when Paul calls us here under the inspiration of the Holy spirit to put on the new heart. The first thing we're going to look at, he's, he's calling for us to put on a certain posture, a certain heart posture. And then later he's going to call it a certain actions. <clears throat> So what is this posture of the heart he calls us to? The first thing we see here is he calls us to put on a heart of compassion. It's literally the, that word, the heart, it's really referring to the inward parts. It speaks to the deepest areas of your affections, to the deepest areas of your very beings. I actually love the way the King James Version renders this. 
the bowels of mercies, the depths of your mercies. You know, our culture talks a lot about things like be compassionate. But what do, do, they, do they really understand what that means? The word compassion, it's, it's an important word because it's talking about having a deep awareness of the situations of others and then having biblical sympathy towards them. But again, I think, I hope you guys can see in there that would only truly be possible if somebody was born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because how can the natural man, how can the man who with a, with a corrupt, dead heart truly have an awareness of another person's situations and truly have sympathy towards them? The natural man is selfish and corrupt. They may do sympathetic things. They may have sympathetic moments, but they can't be, truly be sympathetic people. Because the natural man, at the heart of it, loves himself. And again, I, sympath- I say sympathy, very importantly, not empathy. I've made this distinction in the past. Sympathy means that you can observe and to some degree identify with what a person's going through, but you don't necessarily have to step into their shoes. Our culture wants to do away with the word sympathy, wants to lift up the word empathy. Empathy, you got to get in their shoes, see it from their perspective. But what happens with that is that you lose all objectivity. You lose absolute truth. You lose being able to see it from the position of God and his word. And so a heart of compassion says, I'm aware of what you're feeling, I can see what you're feeling, but I'm not going to let go of first and foremost being able to see it through the lens of God's word. Paul talks is put on a heart of compassion. Now, I made, it a, I made a statement that would upset many when I said that somebody who does not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be compassionate. And so if you're going to make a strong statement from Scripture, show it in the Scriptures. Psalm 25, verse 6 tells us, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all day. Remember, O Yahweh, your compassion, your loving kindness, for they have been from old. (laughs) Compassion, true compassion, flows from the very character and nature of God. So again, Faith is required because if it's something that is part of God's nature, we can only have it by union with him through Christ. This is why we'll see later in the the message, somebody who does not have faith in Christ cannot truly love. And so God is a God of compassion. It flows from his his nature. That was Psalm 25 verses 5 and 6 I read. Compassion is something that Jesus calls us to display. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 7. But if you had known what this means, quoting the Old Testament, I desire compassion, 
and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. God doesn't need us walking around being the judgment police. He's the judge. He calls us to focus on extending a heart of compassion, of spirit-empowered, spirit-wrought, awareness and sympathy of others. And as we do that, we are modeling the Lord Jesus Christ. Can anyone say that there was perhaps that Jesus was, that there was anybody more compassionate than Jesus? He's touching lepers. He's healing blind, the blind. He's coming alongside children. He, the, the outcasts of society he sits with. Jesus has a deep awareness of who they are and what they truly need. He's not offended by them. He's not ashamed to be identified with them. But he doesn't let go of truth. And so we are called to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in being people that have a heart of compassion. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another, more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but the interest of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, the new man that's been born again, the new man that God is renewing, the new man that God has reconciled, chosen, set apart, and loves, must put on a heart that is tender, aware, and sensitive to the circumstances of others while maintaining truth. Probably does not come as much of a surprise as some of you. I've never been accused of being too compassionate. And it's something I recognize I need to work on. In a, in, and I think part of it is we live in a society, or we were living in a society, now it's transitioning, that was so attacking the idea of truth that as believers, we wanted to buckle down on truth. But somehow we thought that buckling down on truth meant we had to let go of true heartfelt compassion. Now our culture is swinging the other way, and it's all about getting in the fields, right? But we have to understand, we need to redeem both. We need to show the world that there is truth, but then we have to show how the truth of God informs true compassion. It's not either or. We need both. I think of so often, at least my seminary experience and in a lot of young pastors coming through, it's like the guy who goes to the gym and he's super infatuated, getting really big arms and a really big chest and skips leg day. And so his legs are this big, but his chest is this big. That's how a lot of guys come out of seminary. Their heads are this big, but their hearts are this big. We need to make sure that we're properly cultivating both. I need to make sure that I'm properly cultivating both. And so he says hearts of compassion. Next, he says kindness. And kindness flows from compassion. It's the natural product. It's being considerate of others, warm-hearted. 
Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize as a follower of Christ, as a child of God, you are a 24-7 recipient of God's kindness? There is not a moment God is not kind to you. If you are drawing breath, it is the kindness of God. Or listen to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and affection, affection of God, our Savior, appeared. So again, true kindness is only possible by those who by faith are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen, our life is hidden with Christ in God, Christ who is our life. Our ability to have the new heart is directly connected to our union with him. This is a fruit of the spirit. If we looked at Galatians chapter five, well, we're going to be in Galatians. We're going to reference this passage a lot. Galatians five, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Again, who produces it then? The Holy Spirit. We think kindness is just being nice to somebody. The biggest lie the world tells you is that being a Christian means being nice. Bodhi Bakum says it's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. <laughs> the scriptures never tell us to be nice. They tell us to be, have a heart of compassion. They tell us to be kind, humble, we're going to see. But not nice. Nice means I'm going to keep my mouth shut and compromise truth at times. Because I don't want to offend. There's a beautiful picture of this kindness found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the life of David. Second Samuel 9. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9, what happens here is that David shows immense kindness for the crippled son of his friend, Jonathan, who had died. His name, I'm going to mispronounce it most likely, is Mephibosheth. His son is crippled. He's hurt. He can't care for himself. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we can't read the whole section, but just look at verse 7 first, or hear verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show loving kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table continually. Remember, Saul is trying to kill David. And then go down to verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and for he ate at the king's table continually. Now he was lame in both feet. David shows compassion, kindness. I'll care for you. I'll take you on. You'll have no need, no want. That's what we're called to. David, we go on here in Colossians, though, and he says humility. You know, during the time that Paul was writing, during that culture, during the Roman Empire, 
humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as a weakness. To be humble was to be foolish. You exalt oneself. In many ways, I think humility being looked as a as, as foolishness as a weakness is making a comeback. Because I don't see how we can talk about humility being such a great thing in a social media age. Everybody's about drawing attention to themselves. They just don't look directly into the camera because that's what makes it humble. You put a stage picture as if it was natural. In Paul's culture, it wasn't looked on favorably to pursue humility. Now, I want to address a misconception. Humility isn't look, thinking less of yourself. It isn't thinking more poorly of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, not being so preoccupied with oneself. Humility really flows from having a proper understanding in light of God's word of your sinfulness in God's holiness. It's recognizing that when I stand before God, I'm really not a big deal. I'm nothing. He's everything. So again, I put forward, how can somebody truly be humble if they don't have the Holy Spirit? They can't. This is only possible through the Holy Spirit. Every single person will naturally always be focused on self-love, self exaltation rather than humility. You know, humility means you also don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to avenge yourself. You don't need to justify. Humility says, in light of who God is, I really merit nothing. And I will let God take care of this. I will put this in the hands of the Lord. I recognize anything that happens to me, anything people say, any slander, is actually nicer than the truth. You ever realize that? The worst insult somebody can say to you, the worst insult somebody can say to you is still too kind. We think too much of ourselves. We're not humble. And therefore, when somebody says something to us, we think it to be wrong, mean-spirited. But in the reality, it's who we are. We saw that in Philippians 2, 3, right? I'll read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility really also strives to say, I'm the least important person in my life. Would you say that? Could you say that? Do you view yourself as the least important person in your life? It's what Paul calls us to. This is what God calls us to. A heart of compassion, a heart of kindness, a heart of humility. He says next, a heart of gentleness. Gentleness, dealing with people in an understanding, even-tempered manner. Gentleness, a willingness to suffer or sacrifice on behalf of another. Gentleness, seeking by way of encouragement to bring change 
to the life of another. If we're going to be gentle, it has to flow from a heart that recognizes that both you and the other person are sinners in need of God's grace. And therefore, instead of being a person who inflicts wounds, you become a person who inflicts care and healing. Jesus, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he says. He's displaying a gentleness, an understanding. And again, this is a fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Gentleness is hard, especially for those who are wired to be more bold truth tellers. I had a, a pastor where I was at previously doing a residency. Call me out on that. Honestly, uh, it was Pastor Colin Smith. And he said, Alex, I love your truth telling. Just make sure that you don't only see yourself as a hammer because everybody becomes a nail. It was very, very good for me to reflect on that. We have to understand there is a time and a place that we must strongly admonish. There's a time also that we must come alongside an individual with gentleness, care. So my whole life, I recognize I'm going to work on not always being a hammer. Some of us have to work on being a hammer at times. But all of us have to be gentle, even-tempered, understanding, and again, that comes from humility. So often the reason we're not gentle is because we're infatuated with ourselves instead of and we're putting ourselves at the center of the situation and we feel attacked, we feel wounded, we feel wrong. And so we lose our temper, we lose our gentleness, and we respond in the flesh. And so we ask, we must pray, Holy Spirit, give me a gentle heart. And so again, you see how this chain unfolds because out of gentleness, Paul next says that we put on patience. Patience, not quick to anger, long suffering, willing to endure for the well-being of others, right? Enduring under difficult circumstances, even, even, even with a heart of calmness. Patience, you're not quickly exasperated and provoked. Only possible through Christ. Only possible through Christ. Because, again, this is tied to the character of God. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you. Not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Imagine if God wasn't patient toward us. Imagine if the minute we did something wrong, just smacked us right then. We couldn't live. God disciplines us, but he's extremely patient with us. 
he recognizes he does not need to make an not everything is addressed. If God addressed us with all our sin, just threw it in front of our faces, we would crumble under the weight of it all. And God, in his patience, in his kindness, in his forbearance, deals gently with us. A patient man is one who has a long fuse, not a short fuse. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. A lot of truth there. You know, what's I have found is so often we're more patient with those that are further from our immediate circle than closer. Those who are closest to us, we're the least patient with. We somehow think we can let our guard down. I don't know how it is, how, why it is this way. But you have, you know, this individual way out here, just walking all types of foolishness. And it seems as if our patience knows no bounds. We get closer into the sphere of friends. Our patient is less. We get into the sphere of children, family, siblings, it's less. We get to spouses, it's less. Really, it's astounding because you would think that it would be the other way around. But I think it's because those closest to us are oftentimes our biggest test. I don't really have to worry that those closest, I'm going to lose the affections and relationships of those closest to me. And so for whatever reason, sinfully, I let, I just let my sin ride a little bit more. But it's interesting that God's patience has shown so beautifully toward his covenant people. We are to be patient with one another. We are to put out a heart of patience toward one another. Long suffering with one another. I, I love that word, long-suffering. Because there is a suffering that happens when we display patience. The older I get, the more I can playfully say, I recognize just how patient uh, certain people have been with me, like my mother. <laughs> you know, I think back on just... The high school years, my early daughter, even early in my faith, the conversations that took place in this very room. Um, and at that moment, I was like, I didn't believe there was patience being displayed. But looking back, I see the immense patience. We need to be long-suffering. We need to be patient because it's in that space there of patience that God is often does his work of grace in the hearts of others. When we're not patient, it, it's almost as if we're not going to give the Lord's sovereign. He'll do whatever he wants, but let us be patient so that the grace of God can, can take root in the hearts of people. So these are these heart postures that Paul calls us to here in verse 12. Heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But now with these heart postures, Paul says, now it's displayed by certain heart-driven actions. And the first one he says is bearing with one another. 
right there in verse 13. It means you hold back. You don't retaliate. It means you display tolerance. And he's talking here within the household of faith. It means that you endure something that's difficult on behalf of that other individual. It's making allowance. It's leaving space for another's faults. Listen to the way Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.12. 1 Corinthians 4.12. And we labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. The word endure there is tied to bearing as one another. Do you endure on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we do what so many do and simply distance ourselves? Too often, we practice within the household of faith, spiritual divorce from our brothers and sisters. We divorce ourselves from them. We don't bear with one another. We say bye. Or we leave the church and we go find another church down the street. And Paul is saying here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that to have given a new heart in Christ means you bear with one another. You endure with one another. You don't divorce from each other. Some of the hardest things that have happened in the church have come from a lack of bearing with one another. You have unresolved issues and hurts. We need to endure. Churches divide because they don't bear with one another. Now, there are reasons to separate. I'm not saying that there aren't. If doctrine, if, if sacred scripture doctrine is at stake, no. We stand on truth and we divide. But if we're simply talking about two sinful people trying to grow in grace and yet bear... In, wounding one another, hurting one another, stepping on each other's preferences, then we must bear with one another. We must endure for one another. And again, this goes back to those heart postures. You will not bear with one another if you've not put on a heart of humility because you are so heels dug in adamant that you must be right. You are not going to bear with one another if you're known to be rough and not gentle, if you're quick-tempered and not patient. And especially with these false teachers in Colossae seeking to divide the church, it's so easy to come out swinging, put on your boxing gloves of truth and just take people up. Paul's saying, no, we need to be bearing with one another. We need to sit down. We need to work through. We need, we need to seek the unity of one body, as we'll see in a few verses later. 
And as if that's not hard enough, Paul goes a step further. Graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you. Paul's not saying you simply bear with one another. He's saying that bearing with one another leads to forgiving one another. And forgiveness is probably the hardest thing for any of us to truly do. True forgiveness. And he says, whoever has complaints, he's acknowledging that some have might have sinned against you. Some are truly at fault. They've done wrong. But you still forgive. And what's so hard about forgiveness is that forgiveness so often feels like weakness. If I'm going to forgive this person, they're just going to walk all over me. They're going to think I'm a doormat. I can't let them get away with that. But forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. Right there in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all of our transgressions. Seems as if God wasn't concerned about being thought of as a doormat. To put it more directly, to not forgive is to be gospel illiterate. It's to not understand what God has done for you in and through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, there's that word again. The Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, significantly less. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until, the, until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly father will do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. We are to forgive 
as Christ has forgiven us. He canceled our debt. He didn't keep a receipt to bring brought up later. God does not conduct forgiveness audits and say, oh, you know what? Something, there's, st- there's still a balance there you, you didn't pay. So let us not be like the spiritual IRS. Coming back to our brother and sister later on, you know what? Hold on a second. There's still something there that you owe. We forgive and we're done with it the way God has forgiven us. Because if you don't forgive in the way God has forgiven you, you're saying your standard of forgiveness is higher than God's. Forgiveness doesn't keep score either. You don't forgive somebody and then throw it in their face later on in the heat of the moment. If you say you forgave somebody and you throw it in their face later, then you didn't forgive them. You simply kept that in your back pocket as a manipulative ploy to be used later on. Listen to what it says in Micah chapter seven, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. They're gone. And so we need to take the vertical forgiveness we've been we've received and extend it horizontally to others. Forgiveness means that the issue was put to death. And guess what? The issues you forgive don't get resurrected. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, which is infinite, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah 38, 17. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. He doesn't look on them anymore. Or Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. The most forgiving people will always be those people that meditate on the gospel and never grow dull to what God has done for them. If you find yourself having a hard time forgiving, you are not meditating enough on what God has done for you in and through his son. Forgiving people are always struck by the fact that how could God forgive me, a sinner? So here's a, ca- a challenge for all of us, a question. Who in your life right now are you not willing to forgive? Who is it? I know who it is for me. This very week, I've been wrestling with how much my flesh does not even want to begin to think about forgiving that person, but I don't have that option. So whoever it is that you're not willing to forgive, I want you to hold a picture of them in your mind's eye here. And then I want you to hold a picture of the, of your savior here. And then ask yourself, do you have any grounds to not forgive them? 
Bishop J.C. Ryle once wrote, no prayers can be heard which do not come from a forgiving heart. No prayers can be heard which does not come from a forgiving heart. We must be marked by forgiveness. I know it's not easy. I know it's painful. It's costly. But those are the same words we have to, that are described at the cross. And I would go so far as to say, perhaps there's nothing we do in this life that so, more, so identifies us with Jesus as forgiving others. So these heart postures and these actions, I want you to see, do you see how they reveal the very heart of Christ? It's who he is. Our Lord and Savior is compassion, kind. He displayed immense humility and gentleness and patience. He endured with us. He's forgiven us. This is a description. The new heart is a heart that seeks to have the very heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the only way we can have that heart is by abiding in Jesus, staying tethered to him. Biblical facts will never give you a biblical heart. That only happens by obedience and submission and dependence on the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This new heart means that you put on love. And we, we, we live in a culture that talks a lot about love, but they really have no idea what they're talking about. People talk about falling in and out of love as if they have no control over it. They associate love with certain feelings or emotional experiences as if it's just some impulse that springs out of you. So often what the world calls love is truly lust. But the Bible doesn't talk about love that way. Biblically, love is something far greater. It's not impulsive. It's decisive. Love isn't a feeling as much as it's a duty of the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded to love God. We are commanded to love our neighbor and we are commanded to love our enemies. That means love is a conscious choice and action that we are to perform by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here in verse 14, the word for love is, is, is agape. It's talking about an unconditional love, a sacrificial love. That, that form of the word love is often used when it talks about God's love for his elect children. Biblical love transcends our feelings and our emotions. And it is to reflect the character and actions of God. I am certain my wife does not always feel like she loves me. But she treats me with love in moments that she probably isn't feeling it. I give her ample opportunity. I recognize that. Um, I often say she's married to a difficult man because love is not a feeling for those who have had children. Do you always feel like you love your children? No, but you choose to love your children despite your feelings. Do you always feel like you love your coworker, your boss, your supervisor, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father? No, we don't always feel like we love people. Does that mean we fell out of love with them at that moment? No, because love is not based on your feelings. 
It is based on the character and actions of God. Because God himself is the source of love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us God is love. We'll go a little quicker here. But I want you to hear the way scripture talks of love in the most probably well-known chapter on the subject matter. 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, listen to verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Does not brag. Is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I don't get a whole lot of feeling language there. It actually tells you in, in four through eight, you find eight things that love embraces and eight things that love resists. So here's the eight things and we see that love embraces. Love embraces patience, kindness, truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. Do you see how all those are things we do despite how we feel? Do you see the parallel to Colossians there? And what does love resist? What are the eight things? Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It isn't puffed up. It isn't rude, meaning unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own way. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account wrongs done. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That is love. Biblical love is shown by actions, not just words. First John chapter three, verses 17 and 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and does and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with words or tongue, but indeed in truth. It's really easy to say, I love you. It's really hard to jump in the foxhole with somebody. But this is what Paul is calling us to put on, this love by actions. That's where it becomes costly. But love is the defining mark of the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the defining mark, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It must define us. A loveless Christian is a contradiction. It is a love that must be visible. It's a love that must be sacrificial. It's a love that must be consistent. It's a love that must flow from God. And Romans 5, 5 tells us that God has poured his very love into our hearts. And so therefore only a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ can truly love because he is the source of all love.
The Holy Spirit creates love in our hearts. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts right there. The Holy Spirit creates love in our hearts through God's holy word. And so as we strive to put on a heart of love, we have to be praying for God's spirit to transform us with our Bibles open and our minds fixed and meditating on the truth of scripture. You will not grow more loving without God's word. Just doesn't happen. Listening to a Caleb song will not make you more loving. It's simply giving you an emotional high. And love is preeminent because for all of these things, all these heart postures and actions, love has to be preeminent. Love has to drive them because to do any of those or strive to do any of those without love makes you a legalist. Love is the rocket fuel for these things. Specifically, love, meaning the love of God poured into our hearts. The spirit-empowered glove is the divine glue that unites God's people. And it brings the bond of unity that he says here. Because as we love one another, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize we're all on the same footing and need the same thing. We'll bear with one another. We'll forgive one another. We'll be gentle with one another. Why? Because we recognize we are all beggars in need of bread. Love's hard. But in order to love others as Christ loved us, we have to die to ourselves daily. As long as you're loving, you know, people say, well, like self-care, self-love. I have to love me before I love other people. Your problem is that you have, you're way too in love with yourself that you can't see anyone else. Ask a young man why he wants to date this girl. Well, she makes me feel this way. She does this. Oh, awesome. So it's everything she does for you. You haven't said anything about her. You simply said what she can do for you. You love yourself and she just happens to be the instrument that allows you to love yourself more. This is where we must die to ourselves to truly love others. You notice Jesus didn't say, well, I love them because, you know, man, those Jews and those, and those Gentiles, like they really... They really affirm me. <laughs> they really affirm me. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. No. They pulled his beard. They spit on him. They called for his death. Father, forgive them for they know what, what they do. And he dies for them out of love. We have to die to ourselves to truly love. And when we do so, I'll be quick here. Verse 15. And the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We're probably going to revisit this next week. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As we put on this new heart, this very heart of Christ, then the peace of him, of him, of our savior will sit in the throne of our hearts and govern everything we think, say, do, and desire. The peace of Christ will not be a feeling, but it will be a fixed state and posture of how we move through this world. The peace of Christ will rule because we will recognize no matter what is happening, no matter how bad the seas are raging, by faith, I trust in him. I will be loving. I will be compassionate. I'll be kind. I will be long-suffering no matter what is happening to me. Why? Because I have faith in the one who's overcome all. Because if I have peace with Christ, 
then I can truly have the peace of Christ. Remember, God is never flustered and fearful. He's always joyful and peaceful at peace. And so likewise for us, as we know that God is in control, as we know that God has done all we need, then we can joyfully have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. And that peace will unite us. Because if he rules, he doesn't just rule in the heart of the believer, he should rule in the heart of the church. We are one body in Christ. We are to be divided, not united, as we saw in verse 11. And it all flows from these things right here. So let me close. Let me close by saying this. As we've, we've reflected on this passage and all that's wrapped up, I'm putting on the new man. We see that we have a new life, that we're being renewed, that we're reconciled. We've been chosen, set apart, loved. We've seen that because of that, in the Holy Spirit in us, we can be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving. We see here that we are to be thankful in all these things. Let me go back to the question I asked at the beginning. How would you describe the heart of Christ? Is it this way? And if Christ, who is your life, and your life is hidden with Christ and God, then is the heart of Christ that we're seeing here being manifested in you? Perfectly no, but truly it could be. Let us strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to have that type of heart. It's in Jesus' name. We're going to pray now. Let's um, pray to Christ. Father, we thank you. I am so, I recognize how much work my heart needs, and yet I recognize how much work you've done in it. So, Lord, I thank you that I'm no longer who I was. I thank you that I am being shaped into your image, Lord, but I also confess, repent, and long to be what I'm supposed to be. Father, strengthen all of us to put on the new man, the new heart, and the heart of love. And Father, we pray desperately now for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts individually and our hearts corporately as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Take and drink. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for this precious sacrament, this meal that you give us weekly. We know, Lord, that the bread and the juice are just that, bread and juice. They don't change. And yet, in it, by faith, you strengthen our inner man. You strengthen our soul. You unite us to Christ. Lord, there is a way, a manner, Lord, which we do not understand, that we are united with you by faith as we partake of this meal. We thank you for it. We thank you that your children are always welcomed at your table. We look forward to the day that we will sit with you, Lord Jesus, that we will see you face to face, that we will look into those eyes. And we'll see your smile. And that you will once more eat from the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Stand and turn to 326. Come thou almighty king. 
as we get ready to leave, receive these words of benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Go in the grace of God. Hey, Janet. Hi, Alex. Hi, Phil. Good to see you. I'm going you up here, so maybe. <laughs> She's right there. It's kind of. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Hold on, I can fix it. I can fix it. Here we go. One second, Janet. We're right there. Thank Sorry. you. There we go. Hi, everyone. So good to see you. Wish I was there. Wish you were too. We, we miss you. So, God willing, soon. Yes, God willing, soon. So. All right. You have a great one, Janet. You too, Alex. Thank you so much. Of course. You have a great one. Powerful word. Thank you. I'll see you tonight. Okay. Sounds great. good. Bye. Bye.